Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. In this episode, I speak to Al Isayan, the founder of Intellinaire, a remote sensing and analytics startup aimed at giving farmers actionable information about their fields and operations throughout the year, predominantly via images gathered from aeroplanes. A grower testimonial on the website reads, With Intellinaire as a grower, I know where to focus my attention on problem areas across my farm. Another says the service can find problem areas they would have otherwise missed. These insights can go a long way to helping farmers grow more with their crops more efficiently and can often lead to them using fewer inputs like fertilizer, water and pesticides. As the world increasingly turns its attention to the impact agricultural practices can have on the environment, these tools are becoming more and more important. They haven't always been 100% useful for farmers, however, and that's something we talk about, how to make sure you're giving farmers the information they need and when. Al is a serial entrepreneur working previously in mobile apps and software, and he has at least two exits to his name. So it's really interesting to hear his approach to getting into agriculture, which he says results from his environmentalism. This episode will be particularly interesting for the tech geeks amongst you as we dive into artificial intelligence and machine learning. So please enjoy. And as always, thank you for listening. I would like to kick off by asking you, what did you have for breakfast? Nothing. I had a cup of coffee for breakfast. (laughs) Oh no. Is that the usual? I usually skip breakfast. Yes. I work out and drink some water and drink a cup of coffee. I try to get Pretty much all my day done when I have to like focus 100% by around 10 a.m. From 10 a.m. on, I you know have calls and meetings and stuff like that. So that's my solo time. Right. And so food is getting in the way. So food is secondary to that focus time. You know, you know what I noticed is that so the last few months I've been doing this sort of fasting thing where I eat my last meal of the day around the latest at seven. And then I eat my next meal at lunch the next day. I learned that, you know, breakfast was always like not my favorite meal. And I feel a lot better. Usually if I have a heavy breakfast, it seems to slow me down. Brilliant. Well, my husband's been trialing fasting as well. And I know that Rob Leclerc, our founding partner, he also does it too. So maybe it's something I should look into at some point. Some people swear by it, but it's, you know, something. I don't miss it. I don't miss breakfast. So. But how would you describe your food preferences then after breakfast? Once you get to lunch, you must be pretty hungry, dinner time. What do you like to eat? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big foodie. So my favorite cuisine is Japanese. I love raw fish. (laughs) So I eat a lot of sashimi and sushi. And then my second favorite cuisine is Mexican. And then third is Persian. Yes. I love Persian food. I love a lot of the Persian stews. I can do away without the rice anymore, but I love the stews and I love the kebab. The Persian kitchen, as you probably know, is 5,000 years old and it's incredible, right? The types of foods that the Persians can make, it's incredible. Yeah, and the flavor profile is so different Mm -hmm. to anything else. I just took some fesenjun out of the freezer that my mother-in-law made for me around Christmas time. And that really has that sweet and sour taste. You're making my mouth water. You don't get anywhere else. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> my wife is Lebanese, so she doesn't know how to cook all of this stuff. So, but we do have two favorite Persian restaurants that we go to. So. so a big question to kick things off. 
What do you think the food system will look like or should look like in 2050? Perhaps you could name two or three features that will have changed from today. I think one that is definitely, I think a lot of the component parts are here, component technologies are here already, would be a lot more AI, a lot more digitization of food production. And as I think precision agriculture and precision medicine kind of go hand to hand and precision nutrition kind of going hand to hand, one kind of informs the other. You know, as you can probably see, there's a lot of medical advancements that are now down to the DNA and your specific kind of, you know, biology. So I think that's one part of it, that we will have a lot more intelligence about our food system. Secondly, I think it's going to be a lot more local. What I mean by that is it's going to be almost like, you know, certain things are going to be mass produced, but then more and more, I think we're going to go to a food system that doesn't require as much carbon footprint as far as shipping is concerned. And then the third and the final thing that I kind of hope, this is kind of a more of a hope rather than what I think is going to happen, is that food is going to be basically commoditized to a point that it'll just be abundant enough that it won't, I don't want to say it won't cost anything, but it'll be sort of like Wi-Fi now, right? Like wherever we go, there's Wi-Fi. We will have solved the hunger situation. That sounds very positive. I'm intrigued. So you worked previously in mobile apps and software. I think you've actually exited at least two companies. Mm -hmm. So very successful. What made you move into food? Were you having some of these thoughts about what you think about the future of food? You know, and how was that transition from, you know, it's very different industries. So I've been in kind of various forms of data and data analytics all my career. This is no different. I like to say that I do the same company in different areas every few years. The way that I got to it, I've been an environmentalist all my life. I was heavily brainwashed by my parents about the environment when I was a kid. And obviously, as I travel around the world, I've been quite passionate about what we do to our planet. So as I was studying, after my last exit in 2014, I was studying like, what is the biggest impact that I could bring to the planet? And several things kept popping up. One was this issue of hunger and wars. I delved into a bunch of books like Collapse by Jared Diamond. And you know, I studied quite a bit about why is there chronic hunger and malnutrition in the world. I went to a United Nations event. There was a big study that came out that said there's 800 million people in the world that are still suffering from malnutrition or hunger and about 80 million that are chronic starvation level. So, and then from the environmental perspective, it was like, wow, you know, agriculture contributes anywhere from 15 to 25%, depending on whose numbers you believe, to our carbon footprint and global warming. And as I was studying it more and more, I said, you know, there's, if we want to really improve the situation that the food system is the area that I want to bring my impact. And then simultaneously, I was asked to go give a talk at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign for a bunch of people that were doing adaptive control systems for airplanes and satellites and drones. So I got fascinated. I said, well, if we really want to change the system, we have to first measure the system, to observe and measure the system. And so that was the genesis of Intellinair, and that's what's in the name, is intelligence in air. 
And we began by satellite and drone technology, primarily to develop enough data so that we could develop our algorithms. And so from day one, we were an analytics company, an AI company, rather than an image production company. We believe that ultimately, Earth observation and aerial imagery and whatever is commoditizing. It's commoditized quite a bit in the last five years and since we started the company and it'll continue to commoditize, we believe. But I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Remote sensing in agriculture has been a challenging space to make real headway. Mm -hmm. And it got a bit of a bad reputation a few years back for just providing farmers with pretty pictures and not much else. And we actually saw funding to drone startups, for instance, really drop. And even some companies pivoted away from agriculture altogether and went into other areas like construction. Why is it so challenging? The history is that, A, a lot of these companies that were funded were funded by Silicon Valley type venture capitalists that didn't really understand agriculture. I chose to not fund the company via Silicon Valley venture capitalists because I knew that the cadence, I studied it for a year before I jumped in. I spent my own money. I invested my own money first. And I knew that the cadence of agriculture, especially with broad acre agriculture and not indoor agriculture or vertical agriculture, was such that you had to be patient. And secondly, I think a lot of companies promised stuff that, frankly speaking, they couldn't deliver and some that could deliver, but it's economically not feasible. The costs completely outweighed the actual deliveries. We felt from day one that you have to kind of bring agronomy, computer vision technologies, and user interface, like, you know, modern user interface technologies all under one umbrella. I interviewed 120 farmers in 2015 before I decided to jump into this game. And they all told me, they're like, hey, if you're selling a drone, we're not interested. If you're selling imagery, we're not interested. What we're looking for is help. We're looking for visibility and actionability all season long. And that's what we based our company on. Even the name of our product slash service, Ag MRI, stands for Measurable Reliable Intelligence. You know, Ag for Agriculture and then MRI for Measurable Reliable Intelligence. So in order to get Measurable Reliable Intelligence, you have to have the frequency of capture. You have to integrate not only aerial imagery, but also satellite, but also soil information, also everything that comes off the equipment. You have to have you know, the pedigree in agronomy to be able to interpret all of those signals that are coming off of multiple sensors, whether ground-based or aerial or off the equipment or just soil information or weather information to make sense out of that. Farmers, if you just, you know, look, our largest customer has 550 fields, you know, state line to state line farming in Illinois. You know, last thing he wants is for you to bombard them with 2,500 images, no matter how high resolution, what they want you to do is to analyze all of that stuff, put it in context, right? curate it for them, and make it available in their mobile devices, in a user interface that actually allows them to go and take action on it. So you're almost taking the image out of the equation for them and actually giving them an alert on a specific challenge that they need to face in the field. Yeah, we call it smart alerts. We even do the prioritization because there's all sorts of stuff happening. Like if you've got that many fields, a lot of the farmers have a lot of fields or the retailers, right, that they have to keep an eye on. The model is basically from like systems management, like data center management, because that's two exits ago, right? The work that we did that ended up becoming one third of the VMware is all around what you have 
you have all these signals coming in. Part of the AI job is prioritization and driving actionability to where the problems are on a timely fashion. So we consider ourselves as the analyzer of all the signals that are coming in, and we're the intelligence system. Outcomes the other end is what we call smart alerts. Smart alerts have both the location of the issue, the severity of the issue. We don't prescribe what the farmer should do. Again, we're sort of like an MRI machine, right? We tell you where your problems are and what you can possibly do about it, but we don't do actuation. We can push it into deer machinery or other machinery for them to leverage it, but ultimately, we're not doing the farmer's job. The farmer and their crop consultants are the ultimate decision makers. We provide them visibility, intelligence, and actionability. So let's take a bit of a step back, just for any listeners that you know are not 100% in our space. What you're measuring, you've mentioned various different data points. So you're taking into account whether you're obviously taking into account the images, the physical changes to the crops, and you're then overlaying different potential indices or different potential metrics to let them know how that crop is performing. And I think in the early days, the NDVI was one of the main metrics to look by, which was measuring crop health, literally how well that crop was growing and relating that back to them. It then turned out that that maybe was a metric that it was a little bit too late in the day. And once you could see there was an issue, that it was too late for them to do anything about it. So can you talk a bit about how you're incorporating these other data points and how you're able to actually give them information in a timely fashion where they can go out and take action? So one thing is that the ultra high resolution is very important. When you're doing NDVI from satellite or any type of analysis from satellite, the problem has to be big enough for it to show up in satellite imagery that the free stuff is like 10 meters by 10 meters per pixel, okay? Now, compare and contrast 10 meters by 10 meters versus 8 to 10 centimeter squared per pixel. So we see things very, very early, hence the actionability. But beyond that, NDVI is just one index. So you have, you know, color infrared, you have the thermal. The thermal analysis that we do is incredible, right? Because we can show some of the most critical issues that you might have with moisture that is fundamental to agriculture. You know, whether you have irrigation problems or tiling problems or water formation problems, we have two algorithms that do nothing but detect water formations. So these are things that are fundamentally different. What happened again is over the course of the last five years or whatever, lots of companies have tried to simplify to here's an NDVI image and based on satellite. Satellite is easy, it's free, you can get it, but you are correct. A, it's way too late, so it's not actionable. B, the problem has evolved to such a point that not only that you can't do anything about it, the information is useless, like downright useless. So what we did is we went the opposite way. We said ultra-high resolution imagery has to be one of the key ingredients into our mix. Secondly, from a standpoint of the frequency, so our service is 13 what we call ag MRIs. So one happens two weeks before planting. So at that time, we alert the farmer about any weed issues that they have to take care of, any tiling issues, any irrigation issues, anything that they need to take care of before they go actually plant. The second ag MRI happens two weeks after planting. So any early season weed problems we capture that you can still do something about. 
any emergence problems. You might have planted 30,000 seeds and only 25,000 came. Well, you have decisions to make. Are you going to go replant? Are you going to put more nitrogen in those areas? Are you going to call your seed advisor and say, hey, something's wrong with the seeds that I've planted over here? These are all profit generating decisions that we help. So from the second flight all the way to the ninth flight, it happens every week to 10 days. These are what we call the ultra high resolution ag MRIs that we do. And these MRIs are literally MRIs. They tell you where your problems are and how they're growing or not growing. And then in the back end of the season, after tassel and what have you, there's four more ag MRIs that happens that helps the farmer make marketing decisions. You know, where do I have strong harvest opportunities, right? To take advantage of temporary spikes in pricing, for instance. So all of these, again, what we're trying to be is we're trying to be this trusted advisor all throughout the season. And that ultra high resolution and then all the other data that we mix to drive our analytics is the driver. We're not giving the farmer lots and lots of data. We're simplifying it through our algorithms to send smart alerts so that they can directly tie it to their economics and their profitability. And how are you acquiring that ultra high resolution? Did you say you're commissioning airplane image capture? We have a global partner. It's a $16 billion company that basically does a lot of military surveillance work. And what they have is they have these incredible sensors that they can attach to airplanes. And so they handle all of that. Primarily what we do is we tell them what the areas are, the total areas. We don't do individual farms. We don't hop from one farm to another, capture an imagery, go to another farm. We capture entire areas, which is broad capture, what we call broad capture. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons that aerial imagery has been problematic over the last several years, is that A, it's not cost effective, and B, it's problematic because you don't have volume of business, if you will, to make those airplanes and pilots necessarily happy if you will. So we ourselves have suffered from that with some partners in the past few years where like regional small players or what have you that that have not been able to deliver, especially this last season with the weather that we had in the Midwest. It was quite problematic with a partner that was doing some what we call scattered capture, not full grid capture or full broad acre capture. The one that was doing broad capture had no problems, even in the worst season that we just experienced. That was a terrible season, huge amounts of rain and freezing points when it shouldn't be really impacting both planting and harvesting. How did Intellinaire help your clients navigate that? Can you give some specific examples of issues that you helped them to navigate? So maybe you detected frost was coming up so they could protect for that? Or you know, is there any specific examples you can share? Absolutely. We had massive numbers of replant decisions that we helped with because of the flooding, no flooding, flooding, no flooding type stuff. The water algorithm was extremely helpful because it allowed us to help steer the farmers not to drive their heavy equipment in areas that it could get stuck or cause additional damage, compaction and whatever down the road. Imagine if you've got 10 pieces of equipment and you're out there and you said, I'm going to go and plant or I'm going to go and spray or whatever. And a priori, you don't know where all your issues are and your moisture levels are. Because to the human eye, certain things don't show. That's why the thermal algorithms are so powerful for us. Because we can see moisture where the human eye 
potentially cannot see. And then anything with regards to ponding, we were able to give a lot of good advice. Anytime you have a lot of moisture issues, you also have weed issues. So alerting our farmers to where the resistant weeds were to go after. And then, you know, also from a standpoint of harvest timing, we were able to help quite a bit because so much of planting was delayed that harvest timing was also delayed. So now you had to have some level of intelligence to navigate what you're going to harvest first or you're going to harvest second, third, and whatever. So these are areas that if I were to kind of summarize it, I would say the emergence slash replanting was a big, big deal. Secondly, with regards to the water issues, that was a big deal that we helped with. And then the third, I would say, you know, weeds. Mm -hmm. And so zooming out back to, you know, some of those visions you had for the future food system, combating hunger globally, how does a technology like Intellinet play into that? What are some of the broader macro impacts that deploying this technology on the farm can help with? I'm going to give you two assumptions and a third sort of conclusion. One of the assumptions that I have is that earth observation technologies is going to continue to commoditize. It's going to demonetize. And the reason I say that is like, you know, Sentinel satellite imagery is basically free. Anybody can access it and anybody can try to build analytics on top of it or whatever. And that's the 10 meter by 10 meter. So for a lot of different non-ag related stuff, you know, it's good enough, right? And it's free. Imagine all those satellites that people are deploying, like, you know, Airbus is deploying satellites and Digital Globe is deploying satellites and Planet is deploying satellites. And these things get better and better and better every year, every year, okay? So if you fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, I think it's not too much of a stretch to believe that these sub, let's say, 20 centimeter resolution imagery will be free or near free. Today, it's not. I think it's going to get there. So that's one. Number two is I think that the big ag players, whether it's Deer or CNH or others, there is this interoperability movement, right, where there's more, more and more APIs kind of talking to each other. So I think the data at the equipment level, at the soil level, will also demonetize. So those are the two major assumptions that I'm making. The third, which is not demonetizing and doesn't look like it's going to demonetize anytime soon, is the human beings that can actually do something with the data. And people always say, well, there's deep learning. Well, our second largest cost is cloud computing, okay? That's an area that the more data that you have, the more computing costs and the more storage costs that you have. And although those costs are coming down as well or will come down as well, I believe that The main thing is the interpretation and the visualization of those actionable insights that is going to be the bottleneck, okay? So as I sort of peer into the future, I would say the intelligence layer and the intelligence layer, both human and then also AI, is the area that I would say whoever has it will win. Because I think the other stuff, the other data assets of it, aspects of it, availability of the data, not the massaging and the analysis of it, will demonetize over the next couple of decades, maybe even over the next decade. And so with that, more farmers are going to have access to these tools Mm -hmm. and it's going to help them overall, you know, reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture, reduce water consumption. Talk to me a little bit about some of those headline 
positive impacts? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, the biggest elephant in the room right now is farmer profitability. Farmers, as hard as they work, a lot of them have major profitability issues, right? So now imagine you've got this AI in the palm of your hand, right? That constantly tells you where your issues are, does the analysis, tells you where the issues are. And in the future, I think there will be autonomous ground robots that can do some of the actuation, some of the actions, if you will, right? As the ground robots start taking care of some of the labor issues that farmers are having, then overall, I think farm, unfortunately, I I do believe that farms are going to get bigger. Well, I should say, unfortunately, that's just the way things are, right? From a standpoint of cost effectiveness of investing in technologies that allows you to get really, really positive ROIs, then you're going to have much better visibility towards sustainable actions. That is my sort of dream, right? Where if you've got better visibility, if you've got better data, better visibility, better actionability, you should, by default, get better sustainability. And that's what I believe we're all headed towards. I think there has to be some convergence, convergence and alignment of interests that drives the economics of it. But I think we're getting there. I think every year that I go to these different conferences all over the world, I'm seeing more and more conversation pushing towards the economics of sustainability, like to make it more attractive for farmers to adopt these technologies. In the U.S., farmers are quite fragmented. There's hundreds of thousands of farmers. And in order for them to have the skill sets to actually adopt some of these technologies, they need help. So the the intermediaries, like the retailers, the equipment manufacturers, some of these technologies has to be made available to farmers through these bigger entities that can invest for the long term. A lot of farmers, frankly speaking, don't have the wherewithal today to invest in those capabilities or the skill set to analyze what's good and what's just high. And what about in emerging economies? They'll have even fewer resources to be able to adopt these technologies. How do you think a platform like Intellinair could go overseas into developing markets? So I did have a conversation with several people at the UN with regards to how these technologies can be made available. We are going to be doing something in Armenia, sort of a pilot country, where we're going to measure, basically do an aerial map of the whole country. It's only like five, six million acres, the entire country. And in those countries, the governments have to do it, plus international NGOs that are interested in sustainability, reforestation, smallholder farmer support. We've had conversations with folks in India. We've had conversations with folks in Ethiopia. So we believe that these technologies partnered with local entities can easily bring huge impact. So in Telenair, I mean, obviously, we haven't raised hundreds of millions of dollars and we're not going all over the world simultaneously. We are actively engaging in conversations with in-country players that could license our technology. And then they have the local knowledge, they have the local relationships, local networks, transportation networks, delivery networks, airplanes, all of that stuff exists in a lot of these countries already. So we're looking for partners that can license our technology and we'll be happy to figure out different models for different regions. The technology is ready. The last five years, we've been kind of curating, curating, curating the algorithms work. Now, these things work for all agriculture, but as you probably can guess, 
as you go from crop to crop to region to region, you do need some final touch customization. That's where the partners will come in. It's sort of like a Microsoft-based technology, but then if you want to localize it for a particular application or particular area, then you've got service providers that can do that final mile. So to finish off, I want to come back around to the comments you made around not choosing to be backed by Silicon Valley and the timelines involved in ag tech and see if we can create some advice for budding entrepreneurs out there, but also ag tech investors. I think it's certainly fair to say that the timeline for ag tech innovation was far longer than people expected. Were you surprised by that? Or did you go into this space fully understanding that this was going to be a much longer haul than perhaps some of your other companies in more of the consumer space? Oh, the latter for sure. It was very clear to me from day one that this is not a simple problem. And is it because agriculture is so complex? You're working with biological systems or is it because farming has in many ways been left behind technologically? So getting that adoption is challenging or is it all of the above? I think it's all of the above, but more specifically, I think that farmers are very smart. They adopt things that work. Now, there are vested interests that sometimes don't want certain things that work too, to actually get distribution, right? But no, going in, I knew it was going to be a long haul. I still think it's going to be a long haul. I mean, we're scratching the surface of all the opportunity here now. So I would say companies that are long-term focused, and they tend to be family offices, or they tend to be your non-traditional capital. I think they're going to have a huge return. I think that from a standpoint of funding these types of companies, there has to be this understanding that this is not a fast flip. I mean, I'm sure there has been some in this area as well, but you have to understand that customers come first. You have to understand their problem set deeply, make sure that both your technology and your people are well aligned to solving that problem and that there's patience. Now, we chose to do broad acre corn and soybean, again, because of the impact of corn and soybean on a global scale from a position of hunger or sustainability and all that stuff. I mean, we're talking about 750 million acres of impact versus a lot of the smaller crops that we certainly could have gone after. But we chose to bring our impact in the area that touches humanity in the most broadest terms. Is there any other advice that you would give to ag tech or farm tech, specifically entrepreneurs out there today? Get close to your customers, understand and see how many of those are there, right? I mean, are there enough? If you're solving a problem, are you becoming a consulting company to one or two farmers or are you actually solving a problem that's much more broadly prevalent and existent out there in the the marketplace? I often give talks and I go, entrepreneurs start companies not because they can, it's because they must. (laughs) It's For me, anyway, the impact of what we're doing is evident to me and that's the energy that we have in our company and everybody shows up every day trying to make 1% better today, 1% better tomorrow. And it's constantly kind of marching down this path and understand that if your technology is not adopted, don't take offense to it, make it better. Understand why it's... Yeah. <laughs> Simple advice. Yeah, and that's the sort of culture that we have had. I mean, I've had across all my companies, which is like, there's no such thing as the customer is not smart enough <laughs> to use your product. You're not smart enough for the customer to use your product. So I think ultimately we have to understand that any new technology, especially with regards to ag and ag tech, 
the adoption curve is not, I mean, look, if you make a mistake, it might be catastrophic for the farmer. It is not just an app that they can delete if it didn't work, right? I mean, you're talking about helping them become more profitable, become better farmers, making them more aware of what's out there because it's really difficult. It's a difficult task, right? And as long as you're kind of true to those principles, I think you should do fine. And I believe ag is a gigantic opportunity. I mean, it might not seem so these days, but I think it's a gigantic opportunity for entrepreneurs that have the courage to tough it out and stay in for the long haul. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Al. It's been such a pleasure to catch up with you and hope to speak again soon. Same here. Thank you, Louisa. Take care. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Boa-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.